0: Well, would you take your Bibles, turn to Zephaniah chapter 2. If you'll remember, Zephaniah is prophesying during the time of good King Josiah, during the time of a reform. We see very vivid language throughout this short little prophecy here. It speaks of fearful judgment that is going to come upon all the world. A day of judgment is a day that strikes fear. Oftentimes, a day of judgment is something in conversation. We may want to avoid it because of the uncomfortability of it, and certainly preaching it, you can feel that uncomfortability of preaching a text that is concerning God's wrath and His coming judgment that is coming upon the whole world and the destruction of that comes with that. Yet what we see in this little letter here is that this is God's means of waking a people up. In other words, this is God calling to his people, you need to wake up. And in that, God shows us how precious our salvation is to him. We also see that in the midst of destruction and Judgment that is going to come, we also have great hope. We see great peace. We see wonderful promises that should provide our soul with comfort of that coming day, even when we see that peace coming through destruction. And so let us hear God's word, Zephaniah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Gather together, yes gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall be a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoasts, you nations of the Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you. O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening for there the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites how they have taunted my people and made boast against their territory Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by the sword." And he, shall, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city and live securely that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. This is God's word, and may he bless the reading of it. As you're hearing that read, and as you're looking over the text as I'm reading, perhaps you're wondering, how do we derive peace and comfort from such a text. But I want you to notice the f- text can really be divided up into three sections. And the first is this, is that, or into two sections. A, we have a call to repentance. God is calling his people, Judah, to repentance. And then we see that he brings a warning of destruction that is coming. But in the midst of destruction, there will become a new creation. And that is the promise that we are given here. But we begin first with this idea of a call to repentance. And that's sandwiched between two warnings. If you look at chapter 1, there was this warning of coming judgment that would wipe out all of the earth. And then from verse 4 through 15, there's this warning on the four corners of the earth that they will be judged. And right sandwiched in between those big sections of warning of judgment and this coming judgment is this call for the people to search out God. In fact, we see that in verse 1. Gather together, yes, gather. That is a, a call for the assembly, for the congregation to come together. And it's, it's really uh, the idea of, of searching is how it's sometimes translated, which is they are to stoop in the dirt, gathering the stubble that is in the dust. That is how that word is often used. And so it's this picture of calling on Judah, will you get down in the dust before God? Will you get your face before the Lord in true humility and turn from your ways? That's what that means when it says gather together, yes, gather. That is a call for repentance. That is a call to humble oneself before God, to recognize who God is and to at the same time recognize who it is that I am. But this is a collective call to Judah that they would humble themselves before God, that they would repent. And what we have to know is something about repentance is repentance is not something that we can just work up in ourselves and do. Repentance is actually a fruit of salvation by God's grace. And this is the surprise that was of the Jewish people all through the book of Acts. that they, they, they were surprised that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. You will remember Jonah as he goes to Nineveh. He was upset that he would call on the Ninevites to to repentance. And he knew that because God was merciful to them, he might grant them repentance. And so when we see this call to repentance, we have to understand something, is that repentance is only by God's grace. God grants repentance. And in the text here, from verse 1 through 3, we will see this call before this happens. It's that warning four times. Zephaniah says, Before this happens, you need to do this. That's the warning. God is patient. God is gracious. And God is merciful. And he's saying, before this coming time of judgment is upon you, you must repent. And so this warning, you you must see this as an act of God's great mercy to Judah showing us how precious salvation is to God. This is where Romans 2.4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Listen, there's coming a day when God will judge all the inhabitants of the earth. And you don't have to wonder whether that's going to happen. Because he already judged the earth in the flood. That tells us that he's going to do it again when he says he's going to do it again. He is patient with us. And he is calling us to repentance. Now I want you to notice how this plays out in Judah. Is when he says and calls them to search out or to gather together to come together in repentance and humility before God he then says oh shameless nation this is his prized possession is judah and he calls the most shameless nation judah's really never called a nation in the Old Testament, God always refers to Judah as my people, as my treasured possession, but He doesn't call them that here. He calls them, oh shameless nation, and He calls them that for one reason because they had become a shameless nation. In other words, that phrase, shameless nation, is reserved for the Gentile pagan nations that were godless. Judah had become so corrupted that they had become indistinguishable from godless nations. Now there's a correlation in this that we ought to see. And and the idea of them being set apart. They were to be set apart. They were to be different. And they were guided by God's word, God's had given his people his word. But what had happened to that word? That word had been neglected. God had given them a law. God had given them a knowledge of himself. But it, that word had not only been neglected, it had actually been disregarded and lost. You think of the tragedy of that, and we read of this during the reign of Josiah. Josiah. In Second Chronicles 34, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, and Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. So you can just play this out in your mind in our modern context. Let's just say one day, one Sunday, we we just said, we're going to forgo the sermon and forgo the teaching, and we're going to do something really spiritual and sing songs and maybe share some testimonies, and that went on for several weeks and several weeks. And you, you just stop bringing your Bibles after a while, because you know we weren't going to open it up, and then eventually the Bible was never opened in this place, and you go down the road and down the road, and you can imagine how a people could get so far removed from the Word of God that they, they don't even know what's in there anymore, and then, and then one day someone comes in and says, I found this Word, and it says, we're not in line with it. That was what happened during Josiah's time as they had gotten so far away from the Word that finding it and uh, was a shock to them that, that, that they, they w- w- were, were cut to the core. The, the Word was the means of direction for them. The Word was their restraint. And they didn't have that Word and they threw off any restraint that they had and had wandered from God And so when God calls them, oh, shameless nation, it's because his word that preserved them, that kept them set apart, they didn't even have it, didn't know where it was. What priority does the word have in the visible church today? Is this word a priority in the church today? What about personally as an individual? And we we have so many Bibles, and, and during the time of Zephaniah, you would, had a, you would have had a scroll, you would have had something there that would have kept it, but it's not like you could have taken home a scroll with God's Word and pulled it out and read it. It was very precious to have. Today, how many of us have Bibles? How many of us have multiple Bibles? How many of us have shelves full of Bibles? We have so much, and if you don't have one, you can go on, on, online, you can even have someone famous to you read it to you. Well, we have the word surrounded by us, but when we have it so much there, so much of it is there, it sometimes can still be neglected, can't it? Corporately, how are we with the word of God? As a church, are we distinguishable from a club? And what is it that makes us distinguishable? Is it not God's word? And as families, do we look different because of the Word of God that leads us and directs us how we are to live as a family, as individuals? Does the Word of God direct us how we are to, to live it? At work, does the Word of God direct us on how we are to work as with our friends? Does it direct us for our, our, our kids? Does it direct us in our associations at school? Jo- Judah had been so far removed from God's word, they looked just like the other nations. May we never neglect this word. May it always be forefront, guiding and directing us. That's why they were called a shameless nation. And so he warns them before the decree takes effect, That decree, a decree of God means it's something that's fixed. It means it's something that it's unchangeable. It means it's something that has limits upon it, that is, it is not movable because it is put forth by God, a decree. That is something that is guaranteed to take place, something that will happen. That's what we have to understand when we see this decree. When we think of a decree, we must know that what God decrees is going to happen. Isaiah says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things yet not done. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. That's Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. What God has decreed in eternity will come to place, it will come to fruition in time according to his set time, not according to ours. So in other words, there's this warning This is going to take place. This is going to happen. And what God has decided to do is going to happen. And it's not going to be dependent upon us. And here's why. You and I might make plans, but there are outside influences that can change those plans, right? We've all had our plans that we have fixed and set in our mind of how something's going to happen. But then some outward influence on us changes that. God is not like you and I. He's not influenced by us, He's not motivated by us. He is unchanging, He is immutable. And we have to hold on to that doctrine of God's immutability because if God were to change, Run this through. If God were to change, that means God wasn't fully who he could be. That means that God maybe is reaching some sort of potential, or that maybe God is less and becoming less because of change. We change all the time. God does not change and is not influenced by outside circumstances. And so when we read this decree, we must know this. A decree comes from the immutable God, the God who does not change. There is no shifting in him. That's a very sobering thought when we see this warning. Before the decree takes effect, before it happens, you who can change must change. This is a call to repentance, and we see this that life is like as it describes before the day passes away like chaff, and certainly life is quickly moving time is short and life is described as in many ways as a harvest and you get to the end of the harvest and you get rid of the chaff it's discarded and it's blown away in the wind and so we see a call here That this is a time of repentance before, he says, there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Before that day, you must repent. It's this picture of that day that's coming is unstoppable and it's consuming of all things. Sometimes we talk about how our society looks and you, you wonder, can it, can it get any worse? And is there anyone else out there that's faithful? Well, the answer is yes. There, there are others that are faithful out there. Just like during Judah's time, though the nation had become apostate, God always had his remnant there. And God's remnant today is called the church. Now, in the church, there's those that are visibly here in any church. And then there's those that are truly repentant that are making up the true church. And notice what he says in verse 3. He identifies a remnant of people. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. That's the identification of a remnant. That's an identification of people that know the Lord because God himself identifies them as humble. And so this is a command to those that are faithful, that they are to seek the Lord This call to the humble, that they are to do his just commands, they are to seek righteousness, they are to seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Now, you notice that prior to this seek the Lord, there's this statement that it's the day of the anger of the Lord, and then you get to the end of verse 3, and it says, the anger of the Lord again. Speaking of God's wrath, but who are we told to seek? We're to seek the one who will dispense his wrath in judgment. That's so opposite of what our world would think. If God is coming with wrath, I want to run from God. God. But that's not what the Word tells us to do. The Word tells us this. God's wrath is coming, and in Him, in Him alone will you find security, and in Him alone will you find refuge. Because here's what we must know. God is all-powerful. There is no other means than the ones He has given to, be, to advert His wrath. In other words, if you look for safety from God, outside of God, you will be consumed by his wrath. That's why we must go to him himself and the means that he has provided, which is his son that has bore our, his wrath in our place. And so what does he call the humble to do? What does he call those that are faithful to do? He calls them to obedience. He calls them to following his just commands. He calls them to seek righteousness and to seek humility. In other words, he calls them to righteous behavior. And here's what you and I must know about righteous behavior. Righteous behavior is always in regards to relationship. It's always in regards to our relationship with God or relationship with our neighbor. So how do we seek out righteous behavior? Well, God has given us instructions in that. He's given us his law, the Ten Commandments, and the first half of it tells us how to live a righteous life before God with him. And the second half tells us how to live a righteous life with our neighbor and seeking their welfare, not coveting their things, but actually promoting their well-being and their life. This is a call to the humble. Who are the humble? Well, let me tell you, Jesus says it like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what Jesus means when he says poor in spirit? It is those that are poor in spirit because of a recognition of their sin before God. He goes on to say in verse 5 of Matthew 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It is theirs. It is given to them. That is a call to the humble. And this morning, if you are here and you are in Christ, that is a call to you. That is a call to you. And this is a collective call, as we saw in verse 1. This is to the nation of Judah. But we are given that same call this morning. If you are in the Lord, I want you to notice how this call comes in the New Testament. In Hebrews, in chapter 10, in verse 24, it says this to us. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. What did Zephaniah say that they were to do? Act in righteousness together. Now notice what it says. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. That we do that what? Collectively as Judah was to do. Then notice verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice what the text is telling us in Hebrews. It's the same context as in Zephaniah. The day is coming so you must gather together in the Lord and seek the Lord together. Notice what we are told in Hebrews, not neglecting to meet together. But when we meet together, we actually do something together, encouraging one another, as we know that day that Zephaniah warns us of is coming. And so, friends, I... I plead with you, I plead with us together on the authority of Jesus as Lord, who is to judge the heavens and the earth, that God calls us to meet together and not to neglect it. That comes from the authority of King Jesus. And Why? The same reasons Zephaniah tells us not to neglect it. Because there is a day that is coming. So we must seek the Lord and we must seek righteousness. And I just want to say something about this righteousness that we are to seek. If you are in Christ, you are made righteous by Christ's own righteousness. We are justified by Christ's righteousness, not our own. Christ imputes his righteousness to us. And if you are in Christ, that means that you are in union with Christ by his spirit, who is the righteous one, which means this, our righteous deeds flow from our union with Christ by his grace and and his grace alone. So if we do anything that could be perceived as righteousness, we can't pat ourselves on the back, but we have to say, praise be to God for his grace that Christ is working in me. In other words, when we say to seek righteousness, we are to act as we truly are. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he doesn't say, you're, You know, you're to act like light or you're to be a light. No, Jesus says, This is what you are. It's the reality of who you are in Christ by a vital union that you have with Christ. That's a call to repentance for us. And when you get to verse 4, it shifts gears for a second and we see this horrible destruction that's coming. We see that all the way through verse 15. Actually, we see that into chapter 3. We see something very interesting in this list that's intentional by God as he gives it to us, and it is this, is that what would have been the known world to Zephaniah is said to be destroyed at the four points, north, east, south, and west, and you see the representative nations that are given here are given those strategic points. So, in other words, it's it's a warning of destruction upon the whole world. And he begins with the Philistines in verse five. The Cherethites would have been the Philistines, and he says in verse five that they will become desolate. Meaning, it will be, no one will be there. They'll be wiped out. And it says they'll be driven out at noon. Do you know what the significance of noon is? And this is so important for us to take note of. Is that at noon, armies usually rested. They didn't fight at noon, they fought in the mornings, and at noon, they would take a break. But this says that it's coming out, at, they will be driven out at noon, which means this. They'll be taken by surprise when they least expect it. You just can see these same words that Jesus says. The day comes when the world will be living as it lived every other day. That day will come when we're going about just expecting things to play out like they do every day for us. But it says this, is the word is against you, in verse 5, speaking to the Philistines. And Philistines, by the way, were in the west. They would have been west of Judah. And it says, the word of the Lord is against you, which is meaning this, is that God has decreed this judgment, and it's coming on you. It will be a complete judgment, because he says, I will destroy, that is, wipe out. Then you go into verses 8 and 9 and you see the east is referenced now. Philistines were the west, the Moabites and the Ammonites are in the east, and we see that now he goes to the east and looks at them, of the Moabites, the Ammonites, that's the descendants of Lot. They were known for their cruelty. They were known for their violence. They were continually opposing God's people. And he tells us how they did this. I have heard the taunts and the revilings, how they have taunted my people. They have made boasts against their territory. That is the land that God had given them. They made boasts against it. And it says that he will wipe them out. Verse 9, they will become a waste forever. They'll become salt pits. What grows in a salt pit? It'll become a waste, as he says. What they once provided themselves in Will be completely taken from them, as you see in verse 10. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. In other words, God says, My people were oppressed, my people were persecuted, and those who persecute them, I will make them desolate. He goes on to say of the South. The Cushites, that is what we would see as either Ethiopians or Egypt, that area. This is to the south of Judah. And we see in verse 12 that they will be slain by the sword, which is speaking of a judgment of death that will come upon them. And then verses 13 through 15, which is the Assyrians, we see that this is now in the north. So what have we seen? The west, the east, the south, and the north. That is a picture of complete destruction of the known world. And I want you to see how bad it was for the Assyrians that were coming into the world power at that point. They will be so desolated. It says that it speaks of their capitals. It speaks of their palaces. And it says that they will be inhabited by the hedgehog. you know what a hedgehog is? It's a little spiny-looking little gopher thing. The hedgehog will occupy what was once mighty. The hedgehog will be the the new uh, occupant of all that they had their palaces will become the home of the owl that's what will become of them what was their downfall pride pride was their downfall look at verse 15 they said we live securely here what is it that? that's dependency upon themselves self-dependency no recognition of God's common grace in preserving. They said this in their heart, I am and there is no one else. In other words, they assumed the place of God. That's pride. That's one thing that has, is in common here that we have to see. God has his remnant, which are marked by humility, and those that are destined for destruction are marked by pride. They're all marked by pride. Now, historically, as you look at these different nations that are mentioned here the Cushites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and the Assyrians historically, these things came to pass in degree, not fully. But they do come to pass, and something about Old Testament prophecy that you need to know is that when the prophet would come, there would be an immediate fulfillment of it. Sometimes it might be a hundred years or or further out, but there would be coming a a picture of what would take place, and it would happen in degree, but there was always this in-time look where it's fully consummated and it's fully realized. And so, in many ways, these, these judgments temporarily come upon them. But what is, we have to note here is that this is actually going to be fulfilled in its fullness on that day when the Lord returns. And so the point of these places named as a point of represent, representing those four corners of the earth is this, is that we have to see the nations as in Daniel chapter 7, the nations are described as what? The beast that opposes God's people. Those marked by pride that come against God's people will be made desolate that's the destruction that's the warning of its coming that's a fearful day but in this text and I hope when I read through it you caught this there's also this beautiful picture of recreation There's this wonderful picture of what is awaiting the humble of the Lord. Those that have been made righteous by Christ. And so when we see these warnings, we see a promise of destruction for the wicked, but we also see intermixed with that is a new creation that's awaiting the faithful. And just if we look at the text itself, what does this new creation look like? The first thing that it will be marked by is this is peace. I want you to notice in verses 6 and 7, it says, And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall be the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down in evening, for the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. Now this is so important to know this is that we are told that the Cherites and the Philistines that they will be destroyed until no inhabitant is left, everything will be driven out. But then we're told in verses 6 and 7 that God will give this land to his people. But didn't you hear the language of Psalm 23 in there? Look what it says. You You shall lie down at evening. We are told here that God will be mindful of them. That He will bring a meadow out for the shepherds and the folds for their flocks. Do we not have the picture of what we are promised as a reality in the Lord Jesus Christ? And we see it so clearly in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Why can you lie down in green pastures? Because the great shepherd is watching over you. because he is watching over you. I want you to notice that as we look at this promise here that is in verses 6 and 7, if we can just for a second get a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth in Isaiah 65. In verse 21, it says this, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat, which means there's no more worry of the curse upon this earth on us. It says, For the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Verse 25, The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So what will the new heavens and the new earth be like? It'll be just like what Adam saw, a new creation where God says this, this is all yours. And you can walk with me. And you can lay down when you're most vulnerable and you will be protected. Now, take dominion. We will be given that. That is the recreation that will take place, that we are given safety. We are given security. And the most beautiful part about this is that we are told shepherds will lead us into the pasture. Well, Ezekiel spells out, More precisely, who this shepherd is in Ezekiel 34, in verse 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my shepherd David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have, been, I have spoken. That is a picture of the great shepherd leading us and protecting us, the one from the line of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be our king, who will be our prince, who will watch over us, and we will worship him. So the first Mark that is promised in the midst of the destruction is peace. But there's something else here that we ought to long for too and that we will experience in this new heavens and new earth as justice will be experienced. You really see this in verses 8 and 9. Where it speaks of Moab and the Ammonites that taunted God's people, that persecuted God's people, that went after God's people, here's what we have to know about the new heavens and the earth. That will be gone forever. That will no longer happen. God's people, when they are with Christ, will never, ever be mocked. And persecuted Again, do we get a glimpse of Jesus' own words when he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is that great reward? It is the Lord Jesus himself. That he will be with his people. And so when we see these words here, that there is coming a day of justice, we, we look forward to that day when every wrong will be made right. But we need to be encouraged with this truth now. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19, as Peter was writing to the persecuted churches, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Yes, there's coming a day when justice will completely be served, when the prideful will be removed, then they no longer can touch you. But even now, even now, entrust yourselves to the one who created you, we must look forward to that day. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we must look forward to that day. When we see this beautiful picture in Revelation twenty-one, twenty-two. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb." Our hearts ought to long for this justice in this world, where pride will be eradicated. The Ninevites of the world that oppressed God's people brought to nothing. I think of those precious saints in foreign countries that are persecuted daily. If you're here on a Wednesday night, you'll know we pray for a different region of the world every Wednesday night of the persecuted church and we we outline how those brothers and sisters are persecuted daily and we pray for them. It, it, what, what a comfort to know that those that that right now face fear and violence every every day. That they themselves that face that fear right now, they'll one day actually rule with Christ judging the nations. That should provide us with comfort, that those that dare lay hands on God's people will one day have to stand before Christ and those people. But there's another mark of the new heavens and the new earth. We have peace, we will have justice, but there will also be purity. I want you to notice verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nation. Now, Zephaniah uh, prophesied probably between Josiah's two reforms. The first reform was when Josiah got rid of all of the foreign gods of Baal, but it was before he had found the word. So there was two reforms. It's in between there. And we saw that in Judah, there was still the remnants of false worship. What are we told here is that there's coming a day where there will be no false worship. This refers to a day when every knee shall bow. Notice what it says. He will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow each in its place. It's the same thing that we're told by Paul in Philippians. One day every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But what that indicates to us also is there is coming a purification of worship. There is coming a day where our worship will not be tainted with sin. What will that day look like? Revelation 22, verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There's coming a day of purity of worship. Even when we follow God's word in regulating our worship service, we still have to admit that it's not always entirely pure. You ever get distracted? Ever bring in baggage? Carry things with you that we should have left? Ever have problems in your personal relationship problems and that, that hinder worship? You ever just tired? Just don't want to come? Is, that's all effects of the fall that will be gone. The new heavens and the new earth will not be like that. We see that through this destruction comes cleansing. And with that cleansing comes peace. And I just want you to notice with me how Peter describes this day in 2 Peter. Such an important passage for us to wrestle with. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 11, since all these things are, a lot of people want to debate, and they've been debating this since the second century. What does that mean that the earth will be dissolved by fire? Some think that it will be a complete annihilation of the new heavens and the new earth, and then a new thing brought in. Others see it as destruction through purification, that there will be a purification. In fact, that's how Peter normally uses that imagery of fire is that of purification. Now, whichever view you you, you land on, it, it's okay, as long as we know that there's coming a day of a new heavens and new earth. But it seems like in 2 Peter and in Zephaniah, what is talked about is not annihilation, but actually a purification. And Romans teaches us the very same thing, that the earth itself is groaning to be set free. Speaking of this coming day, where all things will be made right in fullness. But one thing we have to know is that day, that day is coming, my friends. We cannot avoid that day, Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That day is coming. That day we will not avoid. But we know that it's off in the distance, right? And so sometimes we just tend to, well, I'll get right with God later on. But what we have to notice about that day and that idea of a coming wrath is this, is that if we are not in Christ, if you are not in Christ, that wrath, yes, it is reserved for another day, but that wrath is actually presently on you. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, meaning it's already there. How can we escape the coming wrath? Is to believe on the one that took that wrath for you. And that is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no fear of a coming wrath because it's already been taken. It was taken on the cross. And you're forgiven. And you just await the new heavens and the new earth where you will get to worship in purity, where you'll experience peace, and you'll have justice because justice has already been served on the cross. And so, where do we look? We look only to one, and that is to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, friends, I call us this morning as Zephaniah began this message search ourselves together, gather ourselves together humbly before the Lord, and let us throw ourselves at the mercy of King Jesus, where he is merciful. And he loves to extend his mercy to those who come to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he bore your wrath upon the cross. We know that we deserve it, but by your grace and your grace alone, do we escape that coming day of wrath? And that wrath it would be presently on those that don't know Jesus. Father, I pray for any that do not know him, that they would, they would come to him, they would trust in him, they would receive him. Father, I pray that your word would go forth in our hearts as we depart from this time, and that we would be reflecting on the truths of your word and the comforts of your gospel. And that we are awaiting, those that are in Christ are awaiting a new heavens, and new earth. And and, and words cannot even describe how glorious it will be. But its glory will be because the Lamb is in the midst of it, where he will be worshipped for all eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.